or illness would you be most afraid of for your children? Having seen all of those things for decades, what is the injury or illness that you are most afraid of for your children? Her answer, surprisingly, came pretty quickly. Mental illnesses. Even though she had seen all kinds of physical injuries, and many of them very, very serious, she had also witnessed how people were able to overcome whatever physical disabilities and limitations that resulted as long as they had a sound mind and a healthy attitude. On the contrary, she had run into some people in her life who are perfectly healthy and intelligent, yet lived like disabled persons because of something unhealthy going on in their minds. She was not just talking about those who needed medical attention. She was also talking about those with a negative and faulty view of life, which prevented them from leading a normal, productive life. It can be the victim mentality or fear of failure or fear of other people or many other things. Maybe we all know someone who manages to find something to complain about even when something great happens to him. And you have the nagging sensation that if he were to end up in heaven, he would find something wrong with heaven too. Or maybe we know someone who seems to have so much potential but doesn't get anywhere in life because he has so many excuses. It is so heartbreaking to deal with someone like that. What a waste of all the good he has been given. Sadly, Samson is an example of such a person, even though he was a judge. And maybe we find this to be very encouraging. But I hope we find it encouraging, not because Samson provides us with an excuse. If a judge could act like that, I guess I could lead a mediocre life and perfectly fine. No, I hope that our encouragement would be if God could use someone like Samson, that God can use someone like me too with all of my flaws. Today we will see how Samson was an example of a wasted life and how it serves as a warning to us all. But we will also see how we are given a different path because of our union with Jesus Christ, our true deliverer. Lodged between two famous stories of Samson, Samson killing 1,000 Philistine men with a jawbone of a donkey at Lehi, and Samson's tragic romance with Delilah. Between these two famous stories is this short and not as well-known story of Samson's visit to Gaza. Why is this story here? What purpose does it serve in Samson's story in Judges? Maybe it is because this story provided another legendary example of Samson's superhuman strength. His coming to Gaza did not go undetected by the Philistines. They knew, knew exactly where he was and what he was doing, visiting a prostitute. 
So they thought it wise to ambush him early in the morning when he would be exhausted from spending the passionate night with a prostitute. But Samson somehow knew this and spoiled their plan by leaving the city at midnight. And boy, did he do that in style. He pulled up the door of the city gate, the posts and bars and all, and carried them all the way to Hebron, which was 30-some miles from Gaza. This is what is a fascinating little story, which gives another example of Samson's superhuman strength. But is that the only reason that this vignette is recorded here? George M. Schwab suggests another important reason. He points out how this story is told right after Samson's victory at Lehi, which ended with this statement, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years, chapter 15, verse 20. Schwab says, what was he doing during those 20 years of judging Israel? These three verses may be an indication of what his tenure as judge looked like. It may be that, as Schwab suggests, the three women that appeared in Samson's story, the woman at Timnah, this prostitute, and Delilah, were not the only women in Samson's life. Instead of settling down with a wife after his first failed marriage with the Timnite woman, it seems that Samson had one illicit affair after another. He lived like a playboy. And he was a judge. What a disappointing and disturbing picture of a judge. But we have seen something similar in the description of some minor judges before. For example, all we learn about Ibzan's life as a judge was he had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. If Samson were a minor judge, his description might have read like this. After Jephthah, Samson of the tribe of Dan judged Israel... Samson had many affairs with Philistine women, including prostitutes, and killed many Philistine men, and he judged Israel 20 years. This compels us to think about our own lives, doesn't it? What characterizes your life? If God were to choose one incident in your life to represent your life, what would that be? If your life had to be encapsulated in three verses, how would it go? Tragically, this incident shows Samson's moral decline even though he experienced God's power in his amazing victory over 1,000 Philistines at Lehi. Sometime after that victory, Samson went down to Gaza. You see, Gaza was one of the major cities of Philistia. Why did he go there? To battle with the Philistines as Israel's judge? Not very likely. What we do know for sure is that whatever his original purpose was, Samson was quickly distracted from it as soon as he got there. 
Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Sadly, this sounds too familiar too. We read in 14.1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. We know what happened when he did this, how it triggered a messy, tragic chain reaction in the previous chapter. But what we are witnessing here is not just a mere repetition of his former mistake. This story shows clearly how Samson fell even further. It was wrong of him to want to marry a Philistine woman. That in and of itself would not have been a problem if she had accepted God as her own God. But that was not the case. Even though she was right in Samson's eyes, she ended up betraying him to save herself and her family. But at least she wanted, he wanted to marry her. And she was not a prostitute. In this story, Samson goes into a, a Philistine prostitute just for a night of sinful pleasure. Samson's taste in women goes from bad to worse. And he's supposed to be Israel's judge. Lawson Younger even questions Samson's show of strength in the story. But the feat is completely self-serving, he says. Not that Samson should not have acted to save himself. But it is precisely this. Samson only acts to save himself. He does not deliver one Israelite from the hands of the oppressors, the Philistines. The feat is unnecessary, at least carrying the gate any distance. Simply breaking down the gate would have been sufficient. It is possible, as Mark Boda suggests, that Samson brought the gates to Hebron as a symbol of Philistia's impending destruction. But I think that that may be giving too much credit to Samson, even though that might have been precisely the message that God intended to give. But I don't think that's what Samson intended. When I told my children that I was going to preach on Samson again, one of my kids said, another one of his stupid things? True, but here we have an ironic twist as well. Mark Boda says this episode reveals the Philistine inability to stop this Danite strongman. It is obvious that he can come and go as he pleases. Again, Gaza was one of the five major cities of Philistia deep in the enemy territory. And Samson was Israel's judge whose reputation must have been well known to the Philistines after the battle at Lehi. See how quickly the Philistines found out that Samson was in Gaza and what he was doing there. Yet Samson goes there alone, deep into the enemy territory. Was he being courageous or reckless? If he did this 
for God and Israel, we can call it courage. But if he did it for himself, which is more likely, he was being reckless. Even so, the Philistines did not attack him. The memory of Samson's incredible victory at Lehi must have been still fresh in their minds. But this chance was too great to pass up. After all, he was all alone on their tough. So they chose a time that they, on their turf. So they chose a time that they, they thought Samson would be most vulnerable, early morning after his night of passion. But their plan proved to be useless. Samson might not have been the wisest man, but it seems like he was at least street smart or protected by God. Somehow he sensed the danger and he left before the Philistines could get to him. And he did so in the most mocking manner to the Philistines. They were going to ambush him at the city gate early in the morning, thinking that he would sneak out of the city before people awoke. So what did Samson do? He pulled up the city gate with its posts and bars and carried them away all the way to Hebron in the territory of Judah. What a slap on the face. Samson was impetuous and reckless and not so wise. Even so, the Philistines were outwitted, outwitted in every interaction with him. How frustrating and maddening it must have been to them. But it could not have been simply because Samson was a quick-witted, brilliant strategist. God must have protected his servant, putting his hedge of protection around him through all his reckless escapades and exploits. But I think this only adds to the tragedy of Samson's ministry. There is a painful contrast between God's rich blessings upon his life and his reckless abuse of these blessings. He had a special birth. His conception was pre-announced by the angel of the Lord his and, and his conception was a miracle. He was chosen and called as Israel's deliverer even he was born, before he was born. He was blessed with superhuman strength. And in today's passage, we see Samson coming and going as he pleases, even deep in the enemy territory. It was almost as if he had the invisibility cloak. But what does he do with God's protection and many blessings? He was allowed to go in and out of Gaza freely with immunity. But he used this protection and freedom to go into a prostitute for a night of sinful pleasure and passion. As we saw, this incident was recorded as something that characterized, characterized Samson's 20 years of being Israel's judge. If so, this might not have been the only time he did something like this. Does this make you frustrated and angry? Samson using his power and freedom only for his sexual dalliance with Philistine women, not for Israel's deliverance? Granted that God was still working through all these things to accomplish his purpose. But how about us? Do we have the right to criticize Samson because we are not as blessed as he was and he, we would do much better if we were blessed like him? 
Do you think you would be a much better Christian if you were as strong as Samson was? Or as beautiful as Esther was? Or as handsome as Saul was? Or as rich as Job and Abraham were? Or as powerful as David and Solomon were? Do you feel like a second-class citizen in God's kingdom because you are not blessed with these things? Do you feel less loved by God because you don't have these things? How are we to measure God's love for us? If we measure God's love for us by how well our life is going according to our own standard, we will often feel disappointed and even doubt His love for us when things don't go well. But let us remember that God is good, not necessarily nice. A nice God does everything to make us feel good. A good God does everything to help us be good. A nice God does everything to make us feel good. A good God does everything to help us be good. Sometimes, maybe more than we want, Hardships are exactly what we need to be good. So then if God is indeed good and we happen to go through adversities and trials, we should be grateful for his good and holy love for us. Our good God will not give us unnecessary trials unless they are good for us. And I know that there are some of us in our even in our small congregation, who desperately need to believe this. That God does not give us unnecessary trials unless they are good for us. Because God is good. And if our good God loves us, he must discipline us when we grow lax in our faith and start to go astray. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? What then is the greatest measure of God's love for us? How, let me ask you this question. How do you know, when do you know that someone really cares about you? Those who have gone through a time of grieving say the same thing. They don't remember much from those disorienting and devastating moments, but one thing they remember is who was with them? They don't even remember what these people said to them. All they remember is that they were with them when they felt so alone. So it is foolish for us to stay away from those who are grieving because we don't know what to say, isn't it? It is nice when people give and do things for us when we are in need. But are we not humbled and honored when someone makes himself and herself available to us? Not just his money, 
or resources. And that is precisely what God did for his people. God told Moses, let them make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. When Israel settled in the promised land, the tabernacle, which was a tent, was replaced with a temple in Jerusalem to communicate the same idea, God dwelling in their midst. When Israel made a golden calf and worshipped it, God told Moses that he would not go with the Israelites into the promised land lest he destroy them for their stubborn sinfulness. Moses pleaded with God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And God was only too glad to oblige him because Moses understood what the covenant between God and Israel was all about, God's presence with his people. So it is not surprising that one of the Messiah's title was Emmanuel, God with us. How wonderful it is to have the most glorious and exalted being of all, the fountain of life and every blessing to be with us. Nothing communicates God's presence with us more than the incarnation of the Son of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Talk about God giving himself wholly to us. Have you ever heard of Father Damien from Belgium? He was a missionary to the kingdom of Hawaii, from 1873 to 1889. He's ministered in a leper's colony in Kalaupapa. Ministering to the lepers there, he contracted leprosy himself after 11 years, but he continued to minister to them there and died there. His ministry was not without controversy, but he is a powerful example of someone giving oneself wholly to others. Living among the lepers in Kalapapa, ministering to them in person, and in the end, becoming a leper just like them. In this, he is also a picture of Christ's incarnation, isn't it? Jesus left his heavenly home to come into this colony of sinners, to live among them, to minister to them. And in the end, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. Contracting leprosy is unthinkable. Father Damien discovered that he was, he had leprosy when he accidentally put his hand in a scalding water and did not feel any pain. And it may seem like Father Damien did so much more than Jesus. 
At least Jesus was not struck with such a horrible disease. But really, the curse of hell is so much worse than leprosy, isn't it? And that is what Jesus endured in our place on the cross. Samson went down to Gaza for a night of pleasure. Jesus came into this world to suffer and die for our sin so that God would be with us forever with his presence of blessing and favor and joy instead of curse and wrath and punishment. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. But Jesus no longer dwells among us, does he? Well, he may not be with us physically, but he is with us spiritually, which is not less real. Even as he was leaving this world, he told his disciples, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. His physical presence in this world was a tangible demonstration of God's spiritual and real and permanent presence with us. It's like striking a match. When the match is lit, the fire demonstrates that there is oxygen. When the match is burned out, does that mean there is no oxygen in the room? Of course not. We can say that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the fire and the presence of God is the oxygen in the room. God is present with us. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was a symbol of God's eternal presence with his people. In his omnipresence, God is more inward than our innermost being, as Bobbing said. But he is also with us in his special covenantal presence of grace and mercy and favor. That's the presence you have with God. Love, mercy, and favor without end. But some of you may be thinking, is it true love if someone is willing to be with us? but not willing to do anything to help us, especially when he has the resources to do so? We can appreciate God's presence with us, but if he doesn't help us when he can, how can we say he loves us? But God is not just present with us. He is constantly working for us and in us. Just because nothing seems to be happening in our life at the moment doesn't mean that he is not working for us. When your friend is late, you may think that he is not coming, especially if you can't get in touch with him because he left his cell phone at home. But how sad if you leave when he's just around the corner. He has been coming to you. When you boil the water, it may seem like nothing is happening for a while, 
But you can know that the fire is constantly warming up the water until it reaches the boiling point. And when the water reaches the boiling point, the calm of the water is replaced with frenzied dancing of the bubbles and feverish pitch of the steam escaping through an opening. God is constantly at work in you and for you. It's just that the boiling point has not been reached. When that moment comes, watch out. Incredible and amazing things will be happening in your life. Wait on the Lord, who is good. I hope you are convinced that there is no greater blessing than God and His presence in our life. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can have a greater and deeper experience of God's presence than Samson. So what should we do with this amazing gift? Samson wasted it in his pursuit of pleasure. Jesus suffered and died to redeem us. And when Jesus told Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from that tree, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus was so thankful that he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you see? So satisfying, so fulfilling, so meaningful was Jesus' presence that Zacchaeus was willing to let go of his treasured possession just like that. Isn't it amazing that God's grace can turn a sinner like Zacchaeus into something far more, far better than Samson when Zacchaeus accepted God's grace with gratitude? He who is great in the kingdom of God is not he who has so many abilities and powers, but he who is more grateful than others. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is with us always. He did not make such a great sacrifice to leave us and to forget about us. Jesus suffered and died to forgive our sins. But forgiving our sins was just a means to a greater end. It is for us to be with God and for God to be with us. God will never let us go. He will never leave us or abandon us. If so, should we not seek to enjoy his presence every moment of our lives? And shouldn't our life be an expression of our gratitude to our gracious God? For God will keep us from stumbling and make us stand before the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy on that glorious day. Let us give thanks to him. Let us run the race. Let us fight the good fight. Let us not abuse and waste 
the amazing and wonderful salvation that God gave to us through his costly sacrifice. And let us walk with Christ. Let us abide in him so that we can bear much fruit for his glory. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we give you thanks and praise for your marvelous and wonderful grace in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus Christ is better, greater than Samson. Thank you for coming into this world to bear our guilt, punishment, and curse in our place so that we might have your blessing and favor and love and mercy. Oh Lord, help us to realize how precious this life that you have given to us is because it's been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So then help us, Lord, not to waste it in idleness, pursuit of sinful pleasures, but help us, Lord, to seek your glory. Help us, Lord, to make it our ambition to bring smiles on other people's faces as we give ourselves as an instrument of your love and mercy to them until we stand before the presence of your glory, blameless with great joy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.